Are you up to date on the latest treatment guidelines for using anticoagulants in patients with atrial fibrillation? In this episode of Critical Conversations on Atrial Fibrillation, a masterclass series, doctors Sean Picorni and Emily P. Zeitler discuss a patient admitted to the hospital with atrial fibrillation and a GI bleed. They share insights on current treatment guidelines illustrating the appropriate use of anticoagulants for stroke prevention and how to reduce risks associated with GI bleeds. Hello and welcome to our fifth episode in this masterclass series uh, entitled State-of-the-Art AF Treatment, Catching Up with the Current Guidelines. Um, in the next 10 minutes or so, we're going to focus on the guideline recommendations for treating um, atrial fibrillation with a focus on uh, stroke risk prevention. So let's get started. Um, I'd like to start with a, with a case. Um, I'm going to pose this case to you, Sean. I want to hear what you have to say about it. We have an 82-year-old man with long-standing AFib and a history of stroke. He also has hypertension, but he's being discharged from the hospital after a GI bleed. His um, creatinine is 1.1. His clearance is 53. Um, he doesn't have any kidney or liver disease, and this is his first episode of bleeding. No NSAID use, no alcohol use. And prior to admission, he was taking um, uh, rivaroxaban, 20 milligrams a day, an aspirin, 81, candesartan, and carvedilol as well. He had previously been on Coumadin, but that was switched to the rivaroxaban when he had a labile INR. So, um, so just to summarize, that's a Chazvask of 5 and a Hasbled of 5. So, Sean, what do we do from here? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think that, that certainly, again, as we emphasized in earlier sessions, I focus much more on the Chad's VAS score than I do on the Hasbled score. And, and I really focus on the modifiable risk factors. And so this is somebody that has a high risk of stroke and certainly um, does need to be on long-term anticoagulation. The, the issue around uh, GI bleed is always challenging. And I think it's important to understand whether it's an upper or lower GI bleed and whether or not those, um, those factors have been modified. We know that, that if in the setting of an upper GI bleed, for example, if you modify or treat those risk factors, if they have peptic ulcer disease and you treat them with a PPI and, and triple therapy, the risk of recurrence is really quite low. I think one of the things that we'll sort of talk about over this session is the importance of getting this patient off aspirin in addition to reduce their, their bleeding risk, which especially increases the bleeding risk on rivaroxaban by 50 to 100%, especially GI bleeding. That's an excellent point about the combination of aspirin and rivaroxaban. I think that um, as electrophysiologists, and we have this legacy of aspirin that sort of follows us around. So I'm looking forward to talking about that a bit more. Um, and just to remind uh, all of our listeners about the update, the atrial fibrillation treatment update from 2019. And this is in the context of what we know as a forthcoming update to AFib treatment guidelines. But as of 2019, um, we're uh, reminded that Chad's VASC is a very appropriate uh, risk score calculator. As you mentioned, Sean, it's a great way to sort of objectify what the actual risk of stroke is. Um, and then when we're considering oral anticoagulants, um, at this point, we should be um, understanding that that a, that a DOAC should be the primary uh, go-to first-line anticoagulant unless there is a compelling reason not to, and there are a variety of those, but uh, we should be thinking about DOACs first. And we should be doing that in a population with a CHADS-VASC of two or greater in men or three or greater in women. 
Um, and then there are some adjustments to DOAC based on other comorbidities with particular attention to um, advanced age, uh, body size, and uh, renal function. Yeah, the guidelines, I would agree, are really quite clear, but the problem is what's actually happening in, in clinical practice. And so, again, this is data from the Pinnacle Registry, which shows that, that roughly half of patients who have a guideline indication for anticoagulation are being treated with anticoagulation. And we've looked at this in, in studies, looked at how to modify this, looked at, at which patients in particular we can target. And what we've found is that in particular, it's the patients that are on aspirin and not on an anticoagulant that are particularly modifiable. We know that aspirin um, does put patients at increased risk of bleeding in and of itself. And there have been several clinical studies that have shown the DOACs actually have similar rates of major bleeding relative to even a, a baby aspirin. And so we want to make sure that, that providers understand and patients understand that, that aspirin, especially in older patients, is not risk-free and it's certainly not helpful in reducing the risk of stroke. That's really based on one subset of one study that, that was really just a, an erroneous finding that, that led people to believe that aspirin reduces the risk of stroke. It certainly does not. That's a, that's a really good point. I spend a lot of my time um, discontinuing aspirin from medication lists. And it's one of my great joys in my in my day to day life. So thank you for bringing that up. We know that you know a lot of patients say, well, it's got to be better than nothing, but in fact, it's worse than nothing. It it causes more bleeding, um, and patients with atrial fibrillation in particular are far better off taking an oral a, a direct oral anticoagulant, which has low risks of bleeding and actually does um, uh, significantly reduce their risk of stroke. Um, and it's important to uh, remember that not just um, that, that, that DOACs in particular are perfectly appropriate for patients with atrial fibrillation, even in the context of most valvular heart disease. Now, this is a change um, that, that you and I have experienced over our careers so far, which is that only really in the setting of mechanical valves or in moderate to severe um, rheumatic mitral valve disease um, would you want to pick Coumadin um, specifically over a DOAC, really in all other cases, including um, scenarios that previously Coumadin was spelled out as the preferred agent, as in you know hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with atrial fibrillation. Um, warfarin used to be the agent of choice in that scenario, but really there are very few cases when uh, warfarin would be used over DOAC. Now, of course, there are uh, patient-specific cases when that's not true, as you mentioned in a previous episode about affordability. Um, but really, the the guiding principle should be, you know, uh, looking for a reason not to use a DOAC. In all other cases, these are safer uh, and more effective drugs. Um, I did mention briefly about the um, issue of renal dysfunction and the use of DOACs. Um, some of the DOACs have uh, dose reductions uh, available in the in the setting of renal dysfunction. Some of those are uh, have been validated, others less well validated. Um, but there are some um, guidances about how to use dose reduced um, DOACs for uh, renal dysfunction in the guidelines. Yeah, the, the new ACC AHA valvular heart disease guidelines surprised me. Are there any other situations where historically we wouldn't have treated with DOAX, but now we would, Emily? Well, yeah, I mean, we, we talked very quickly about a couple of them. You know, um, uh, mitral valve disease uh, has the, the definition of that has, has become narrower and narrower over time when we talk about non-valvular atrial fibrillation, that term gets thrown around quite easily and, and the definition of it 
well, the definition of valvular atrial fibrillation, that's the definition that's gotten narrower over time, that we're really just talking about severe mitral stenosis. Um, and in all other cases of valvular heart disease, except of course for mechanical valve, um, a DOAC is a, is a preferred agent. Um, and also we mentioned hypertrophic cardiomyopathy again in that population. It's not a valvular heart disease per se, uh, but patients with hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy who very often have atrial fibrillation, um, those patients, it's very appropriate to use a DOAC now when, when historically warfarin was the preferred agent. Let's get back quickly to our case and, and wrap that up. Um, so, uh, Sean, we've talked a bit about this patient with his high chads vasc and high has blood score. Um, so what do we do with his medications and with his management in general? Yeah, so, so again, I would say that, that for this patient, um, you know, really the, the benefits of anticoagulation outweigh the risk of stroke. And I think that, that one of the things that may have led to this patient's GI bleed was the fact that they were on aspirin in combination with the anticoagulation. And so certainly this is somebody that I would um, restart on rivaroxaban and would stop their aspirin. That's an excellent point. I'd probably do the exact same thing. So in summary, um, we've discussed that afib-related stroke risk is, a high, is highly modifiable with appropriate anticoagulation therapy, and that there are still existing uh, clinical practice gaps or evidence gaps in clinical practice about um, patients who are eligible for anticoagulation therapy versus the uh, patients who are actually treated. And uh, as we discussed, DOACs are, uh, in nearly all cases, the preferred agent over warfarin, but there are specific scenarios when that's not true. In our next episode, we're going to investigate whether what we've seen in clinical trials um, and that are reflected in the guidelines, whether those actually translate into our real-world real world practice. So stay tuned. Thank you for listening to this episode. Don't forget to listen to the other episodes in this Masterclass series and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash WQZ860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available online. This activity is supported by an educational grant from the Bristol-Myers Squibb and Pfizer Alliance.